Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the examples that William James provides in Pragmatism Lecture 2 that could be a bit confusing for some readers has to do with what he calls the absolute, and it's closely connected with religion, God, beliefs, moral holidays, all sorts of other topics, as well as what the pragmatist's point of view on this would be. And in order to put this in context, it's useful to remind ourselves that, you know, James is writing at the cusp of the 19th and 20th centuries. He's very literate. He's part of the Harvard community. So he's part of the sort of on the cutting edge of the literary and philosophical and scientific developments of the times. And so he's considering something that is becoming more and more popular as previous considerations and understandings of religion are, are, if not necessarily going away, certainly being challenged and pushed to the margins within the educated set. So he talks about present day idealism. And here he has in mind the movement that starts out in Germany, among which Immanuel Kant and Georg Friedrich Wilhelm Hegel. And, you know, by that time as well, they're, they're getting to know Schopenhauer. And of course, they've got some other people in there as well, are very important figures and created new systems and approaches to philosophy. Now, a lot of Americans went to be educated in Germany, came back having learned that German philosophy and a lot of Germans brought it over here to America. We can talk, for example, about the St. Louis Hegelians. And so there's all this confluence, all this connection between that. Around the same time, you know, the British establishment has quite a few Hegelians in it as well. And, you know, idealism had been in Britain for quite a while. Coleridge was one of the early people to, to get it started. So there's, there's a long, rich history there. And he talks about this present day fashion of idealism. And he says that this is not very appealing to many people. Why? Because it's too intellectualistic, right? And he says old fashioned theism that, you know, sort of what we would call traditional religion was bad enough with its notion of God as an exalted monarch made up of a lot of unintelligible or preposterous attributes. But so long as it held strongly by the argument from design, it kept some touch with concrete realities. It could, it could satisfy the ordinary person and in, indeed the educated person's beliefs. They could say, yeah, I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Congregationalist or I'm a Lutheran. And these ideas could hold some sway in their mind. But then he says, since Darwinism has displaced design from the minds of the scientific, theism has lost its foothold and some kind of imminent or pantheistic deity working in things rather than above them is, if any, the kind recommended to our contemporary imagination. So aspirants to a philosophic religion turn as a rule, he says, more hopefully towards idealistic pantheism rather than the older dualistic theism in spite of the fact that the latter has defenders. Now, what is this idealistic pantheism and why is he contrasting it to a dualism? The idea is that the old time religion with a traditional conception of God that we might find, say, in Thomas Aquinas or John Calvin, right? You've got God, the creator of the universe, and then you've got everything else, and God is superior to the everything else. 
Pantheism says God is the everything else and there's no else. That's it. Everything is in some way God. And some things could be more God. Some things could be less God, but everything's God. And then the idealism is, you know, this movement of thought that James associates very closely with the rationalistic temper. It's prone to working out systems and likes the absolute. And it tends to be very oriented towards providing arguments and inferences that everyone is supposed to be able to accept, but oftentimes it doesn't turn out that way. And so he says, this pantheism is kind of hard to assimilate if you're a lover of facts or empirically minded. Why? Well, it has no connection with concreteness. Affirming the absolute mind, which is its substitute for God to be the rational presupposition of all particulars of fact, it remains supremely indifferent to what the particular facts in our world actually are. This is a big problem, is it not? So he says, be they what they are, the absolute will father them. Like the sick lion in Aesop's fable, all footprints lead into his den. But in here he says, nulla vestigia retrorsum, which is Latin for there aren't any footprints coming back out, right? And he says, you can't redescend into the world of particulars by the absolute's aid or deduce any necessary consequences of detail important for your life from your idea of his nature. He gives you the assurance that all is well with him and for his eternal way of thinking, but you're to be finitely saved by your own temporal devices. So what he's saying here is, you know, it kind of seems from a pragmatic point of view that this idealistic pantheism doesn't have much to offer. How's it going to help you? How does being connected with the absolute mind make your life any better? As he says, then it seems pretty remote, pretty abstract, right? This is a problem then. Now he says, okay, what if we do look at it from a pragmatic point of view? What are people getting out of all this talk about the absolute or absolute spirit or mind being vaguely Hegelian, Coleridgean, whatever other configuration of this idealism that you want to give it? He says, you know, to begin with, pragmatism is not a materialism like empiricism often tends to be. And, you know, if we think about what theological ideas do, he says, theological ideas can be true in a sense if they have a value for people's lives. So if believing in this, even though it doesn't have any practical consequences, helps people out, that's a practical consequence. You see, so you can, you can say, well, even though you can't verify the absolute, even though the absolute doesn't like do anything apparently within your life, believing in it makes you feel better. And that winds up being something good. So he says, if our theological ideas prove to have a value for concrete life, they will be true for pragmatism, but in a certain sense, not true in a complete sense, in the sense of being good for so much. And he goes on for how much more they are true will depend entirely on their relations to the other truths that also have to be acknowledged, right? So the absolute does in fact offer comfort to quite a few people. James is not actually one of those people, by the way, but he's registering that it does for others. And he says, what do believers in the absolute mean when they say that their belief affords them comfort? Here's where we get into some real content, some actual stuff. What do they say? He says, they mean that since in the absolute finite evil is overruled already, we may therefore, whenever we wish, treat the temporal as if it were potentially the eternal. Be sure that we can trust its outcome and without sin, dismiss our fear and drop the worry of our finite responsibility. In short, they mean that we have a right ever and anon to take a moral holiday 
to let the world wag in its own way, feeling that its issues are in better hands than ours and are none of our business. This is very interesting because this could just as well apply to the classical theist who has the God's mysterious ways, you know, there's a divine providence, great plan. I, you know, even though the world looks like crap and I seem to be suffering quite a bit, I can still say, well, I don't need to do anything. We can have a certain kind of quietism saying, oh, will of God, right? Or we can be pantheistic, idealistic, absolutists and say, Ah, you know, the world spirit is moving. I don't need to do anything. It's okay for me. I don't have to feel crappy about everything. I can look around at the suffering and say, somehow all of this is going to get redeemed. It, it, it's all going to work out somehow. There's a lot of other perspectives by which people can do this as well, aren't there? So that's the kind of comfort. And this is what James calls taking a moral holiday, which is a very interesting phrase, is it not? What does he mean by this moral holiday? He says, the universe is a system of which the individual members may relax their anxieties occasionally, in which the don't care mood is also right for men and moral holidays in order. That is a mistake not, in, is in part at least of what the absolute is known as. That is the great difference in our own par particular experiences, which is being true makes for us. That is part of his cash value when he's pragmatically interpreted. We get to relax and think that things are going to be okay. Now, does that mean that the absolute exists? Because people can say, don't worry, be happy, or it's all good, or whatever catchphrase we want to have, right? Imagine a God, this is a bit of a digression, imagine a God, instead of being composed of what James calls, you know, these in incomprehensible attributes, instead it's a God of catchphrases, you know, a God about which we can say, well, he lets us say, don't worry, be happy, or it's all good, or whatever else we want to have, all these cliches. What a God that would be, wouldn't it? Now, James goes on and he says, oh, there's a little problem here. So truth, if we want to say that truth is what it would be better for us to believe than not to believe, it still has to jibe with the other things that we think are true. Right? So he says that if there be any life that is really better, we should lead. And if there be any idea which, if believed in, would help us to lead that life, then it would really be better for us to believe in that idea unless, there's a key proviso here, right? Unless indeed belief in it incidentally clashed with other greater vital benefits. So are there any other benefits that... Any other truths provide that this notion of the absolute would run into? James seems to think there is. He says that what is better for us to believe is true unless the belief clashes with some other vital benefit. In real life, what vital benefits is any particular beliefs of us most liable to clash with? What indeed except the vital benefits yielded by other beliefs when these prove incompatible with the first ones? In other words, the greatest enemy of any one of our truths may be the rest of our truths. Truths have once for all this desperate instinct of self-preservation and of desire to extinguish whatever contradicts them. So he says, my belief in the absolute, based on the good it does me, thinking about moral holidays, must run the gauntlet of other beliefs. Are there any things that clash with it? He says, well, when I look at my own mental life, I find this is not a very plausible option for me. Why? He says that it happens to be associated with a kind of logic of which I'm the enemy. So I'm already committed to something else. And I find that it entangles me in metaphysical paradoxes that are unacceptable. 
I'm not happy with that either. And he says, as I have enough trouble in life already without adding the trouble of carrying out these intellectual inconsistencies, I personally just give up the absolute. I just take my moral holidays or as a professional philosopher, I try to justify them from some other principle. And he says, if I could just restrict my notion of the absolute to its bare holiday giving value, it wouldn't clash with my other truths, but we can't easily thus restrict our hypotheses. And here he has a wonderful phrase. They carry supernumerary features and these it is that clash. So my disbelief in the absolute means then disbelief in those other supernumerary features for I fully believe and the legitimacy of taking moral holidays. What are these other supernumerary features? All the other commitments that come with buying into a notion of the absolute that is coming from, you know, idealistic pantheism and, and you know, idealism in, in general. James says that's just not going to work for me. Not only the absolute can clash with other truths, but it does. But James is willing to say that, I mean, it works for other people. And so it's true in so far as it works for them, just doesn't work for me or people who are so constituted like myself. So can pragmatism embrace this idealistic pantheistic notion of the absolute? Yeah, it depends. You know, it depends on what we're willing to live with and give up. It can embrace it to a certain extent and then say, eh, there's, there's other things that are more important that I need to hold on to other truths that are more true in the sense of being more vital, more good that will militate against accepting this particular truth as true. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works. <laughs>